0: I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and, and open up with me to John 15. As we look at the world around us, there are so many different ideas of what genuine or true spirituality looks like. A lot of different uh, directions you can take with that. And even throughout church history, there's been a lot of different views about what true spirituality is. Does true spirituality consist of uh, going up into the the mountains and being on your own by yourself and contemplating and, and meditating upon the meaning of life? Like the Tibetan monks. Is that what true spirituality looks like? Or does true spirituality look like uh, following one of the, the myriad of uh, Hindu gurus? Uh, as uh, Tim Carns shared uh, last week and talked about their, their journey into to Pakistan, uh, spirituality there uh, looks like and consists of following uh, Mohammeds following his teachings following uh the the teachings of the the imams this true spirituality consists of following the old testament torah that's what the, the orthodox jews would claim secular jews would claim something very very different from that kind of do your own thing it's a broad spectrum there what about mormonism uh of, you can uh, have a, a forever family uh, and and uh you you partake of the, the celestial marriage in the temple and then your your children and your spouse are are with you for eternity is that what true spirituality looks like if you wanted to right now you could also go into to washington or oregon probably uh, and you could go on a really a a pagan retreat where you could go down and uh out into the woods uh, and and worship uh, the, the gods of the native americans there's a, a variety uh, within our world today uh, of, of views concerning what true spiritual life looks like and what does it look like and how do i know uh, that whatever i'm pursuing is actually the right one if there's all of these different choices all of these different options Which one is the right one? And then how do I know if I have spiritual life in and of myself? They're really important questions. And Jesus is going to address all of those questions. As we study John 15, we've made it all the way here. It's been a long time. But as we walk through and what we've been studying uh, in chapters 13 through 14 thus far, it's been kind of Jesus' final words to his disciples. We're on the evening of his betrayal. And as we saw at the end of chapter 14, Jesus said to his disciples, get up, let us go from here. And as we discussed several weeks ago, it was Jesus telling his disciples that they were going to depart from the upper room of John Mark's house where the Last Supper was being held, and they were going to be uh, begin a, a walk potentially to uh, the temple uh, in Jerusalem. We don't know uh, where, or that maybe just on their way, kind of me- mirand, uh, meandering. That's the word that I'm looking for: meandering around the city. Uh, and, and kind of going back ways over to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where ultimately Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. And so we don't know the, the, the context of what route they're taking that maybe that, that as they're walking along, Jesus is seeing vines, which would have been prevalent there in Jerusalem and in that uh, region. Uh, he might be looking at things around him or he may just be uh, teaching them, uh, as we'll see from Old Testament concepts. But Jesus is going to... ...to instruct them as they uh, are walking through the city here in John 15. And he's going to to continue to instruct his disciples as he has been... Uh, ...concerning three important relationships. Uh, at the beginning of this chapter, he's going to, to speak about how they are to relate to him. Uh, that's in verses 1 through 8. And really what we're going to find is that he is going to command them to abide in him. And, and in verses 9 through 17... Jesus is going to uh, teach them and instruct them concerning how they are to relate to one another. And they, ultimately they are to love one another. And then beginning in verse 18 and through into 16, uh, verse 4, Jesus is going to instruct them concerning their relationship with the world. Uh, they are to go out into the world and they are to, to bear witness or testify concerning who Jesus is and what he has done. And this morning we're just going to look at the first two verses of chapter 15, but I I want to read the the first section, verses 1 through 8, where Jesus is going to instruct his disciples concerning how they are to relate to him. If you begin with me there, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let's pause and pray. Father, you are the vine grower. You are the one who is at work to cultivate uh, people for yourself through your son and for that we thank you and praise you for all that you have done and all that you continue to do i pray that you would use this time this proclamation of your word to soften our hearts to open our eyes to draw us near to you in humility and faith and that ultimately that you would grow and deepen our reverence for you even as we just sang may the words of that song be our heartfelt prayer to you right now as we study your word and may you uh, grow us and shape us and fashion us for your glory we pray in jesus name amen well as jesus is instructing his disciples he's going to to use a very familiar uh, illustration a very familiar parable uh, to help explain who he is and how the disciples are to relate to him, but he's also going to explain how God the Father is going to be at work uh, in and among them once he has departed. And this illustration is going to explain what true, genuine spiritual life looks like and consists of. And the parable that Jesus uses here to instruct his disciples continues to instruct us as well because we must to re- relate to Jesus in exactly the same way. And we must understand how God is at work in the world uh, during the church age, in between this time of Christ's first and second comings. And so what is it that we need to know about true spiritual life? And as as you see on on your outline in front of you, we'll say that there are three truths regarding spiritual life that is genuine, that we must embrace in our hearts and minds if we are to bear any fruit for Christ. That is the ultimate goal, right? And we're going to get to that in verse 8. Uh, we have been planted by God the Father to bear fruit and prove that we are disciples of Jesus. But there's the beginning portion of this that we have to to know and wrap our minds around and come to believe in our hearts and build upon that. And this first truth is seen in the very first simple statement in verse 1. And I would say this truth is that union with Christ is spiritual life. Union with Christ is spiritual life. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. As we've been working our way through John's gospel, we've seen uh, on six prior occasions uh, what is known as an I am statement. And uh, those statements consist of Jesus uh, declaring something about himself. He's going to rename himself. And as he's going to say, I am the, uh, and he's going to equate whatever follows with himself. So he's telling us about who he is and what he has come to do. Uh, In through as we worked our way through the gospel of john at 635 jesus said that he is the bread of life uh, in 812 he says that he is the light of the world In chapter 10 we see two of them he says that he is the door of the sheep and that he is the good shepherd in chapter 11 he said that he is the resurrection and the life and then earlier in this uh, upper room discourse in 14 6 jesus said that he is the way the truth and the life And so all of these statements uh, pertain to Jesus uh, being the source of life and the giver of life. And each one of these is followed by a call to believe, a whoever statement of whoever looks to me or if anyone does this, uh, then there's going to be blessings and benefits that come to that. And so there is a a repeated theme of these types of statements throughout John's uh, gospel and Christ's ministry. But there's also many other I am statements that are not followed by that same pattern of I am the uh, and and Jesus identifying as uh, something and explaining himself there there's many other I am statements that reveal that that God or Jesus is uh, equal to God the Father that he is truly God uh, and if you if you turn back to to John chapter 4 its little little statements uh, in in which he, he will reveal himself or declare that he is uh, in in the Greek it is known as or it's stated as ego a me that i am Uh, and this is building upon old testament theology for the name of god chapter 4 verse 26 speaking to the samaritan woman jesus said to her i who speak to you am he Uh, but really in the greek it's just i who speak to you uh, i am Uh, and chapter 6 verse 20 Speaking to his disciples as he's walking on the, the water and uh, on the Sea of Galilee. He said to them, it is I. Or literally, I am. He said, Do not be afraid. Then in chapter 8, speaking to the Pharisees, debating with them. In verse 24, therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins... For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Verse 28 in that same chapter. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. But again, in in the NASB or the LSB, the ESV will kind of incorporate things in. They don't mark out certain words as being provided by the translators. But in the NASB or the LSB... Uh, it'll have uh, italicized that word he so jesus is literally just saying i am that when the son of man is is lifted up you will know that jesus is god verse 28 we read in that same chapter and then if you look over to verse 58 in chapter 8 jesus said to them truly truly i say to you before abraham was i am so there are uh, numerous declarations of uh, Jesus as being the son of God. And this is uh, repeatedly uh, seen throughout the, the gospel of John. And in this statement that we have here in John 15, the last of these statements, Jesus is going to, to give a, another clear and poignant picture of how we are to, to look to him and understand him. He says here that he is the true vine. If anyone wants spiritual life, they must be connected to Jesus in the same way that that a shoot of a vine must be connected to the vine in order to survive and bear fruit. tree branches don't survive on their own and nor do these little offshoots of a vine. If you cut it off, they wither and die and they they don't uh, exist apart from being connected to the, the main vine itself. Again, a clear and poignant picture now you must be connected to him by looking to him in faith and that was that was the point of all of the i am statements jesus would would teach and instruct about who he is uh, and how we should understand his person but then uh, after all of those statements there was a clear call uh, to for everybody who is listening to look to him in faith to respond to who he is Listen to what comes after each of those I am statements. In 635, he who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In 812, he who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. In 109, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. In 1125 and 26, he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. And then he asks Martha, do you believe this? And then in 14.6, he states it uh, negatively. He says that no one comes to the Father but through me. So all of these blessings uh, and many more flow out of our union with Christ. Being united with and connected to jesus and again that was the main emphasis of what we saw at the end of chapter 14 jesus is saying i'm going but don't worry i'm going to come back i'm going to be with you and in you and the spirit's going to come and dwell within you and the triune god is in the believer that was the powerful truth that jesus is laying out to his disciples before he goes but here in this statement jesus doesn't merely say that he is the vine he says that he is the true vine What does that mean? Well, he is the the genuine. He is the authentic vine. Similar statements were made in chapter 1, verse 9, that Jesus uh, is said to be the true light. Uh, In 632, he said that he is the the true bread. Uh, And so in in contrast to everybody else who may claim uh, to be the the conduit and the, the lifeline of spiritual life. Jesus is the authentic one, the true vine that we all must be connected to. And only Jesus has the ability to give life because only he is the truth. Now, I recently had to, to purchase a, a catalytic converter for my car. Anybody else have to do that ever? And so you, you face a, a decision, right? One option is to purchase the, the original genuine part from the manufacturer. But the downside to that is what? Oh, it, yeah, it's like, so my right arm and then the, my credit card, just put it on, uh, just give it to the, the car dealership. So I, I could get a, a, a genuine Mazda catalytic converter for like 1200 bucks, or I could go for an, an aftermarket part for about $600. Uh, and so I opted for the, the $600 one. Uh, I know it's risky. I'll let you know how it, how it turns out. Uh, and, and that is the, the risky decision, right? You can opt for the, the non-genuine parts, but it might or might not work out. But, but if you opt for the non-genuine vine, if you try to connect yourself to, uh, some other spirituality besides Christ, you, it will not work out. You will not have spiritual life because Christ is the true vine. Life comes and flows only through him. And that, that's the point that, that he is making to his disciples. That's what he wants them to walk away with. Uh, it, we're reading through Galatians in, in our scripture reading on Sunday morning. Just started today. That that's what the Apostle Paul is going to be so upset with the Galatians about. You could tell, about it, tell it in chapter 1. There's no like, oh, I'm so proud of you. You're doing so well. He gets right down to business. What are y'all thinking what are you doing? Why are you departing and going to a different gospel? And so Jesus, to his disciples here, he's saying, make sure you stay connected to him and only him. But when in making this statement that he is the true vine, I think Jesus is also speaking it or has another vine in mind. And he's comparing himself To this other vine. In the Old Testament, Israel is repeatedly illustrated and spoken of as being a vine. If you you turn with me uh, to Psalm 80. We worked through the Psalms today in our equipping hour survey. I would encourage you to go and, and listen to that. Psalm 80 is written by Asaph. Psalm 80, beginning in in verse 8. Speaking of God, he says, "...you removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations, and then you planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its boughs. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river." And why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest devours it, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, return now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and visit this vine. Even the sapling which your right hand has planted and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. So what we see in this passage is Asaph is using this illustration of a a vine being uprooted uh, and planted somewhere else to describe how God has interacted with Israel in the past, uh, in the present of Asaph's time, and then also how God was going to continue to interact with Israel in the future. Uh, And so he he establishes this picture of the vine as how God deals with Israel. Now, if you turn over with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah builds on this same theme. Isaiah writing later. Isaiah 5, beginning in verse 1. It says, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it. And also hewed out a wine vat in it. And then he hoped for it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. So now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more has there was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then? Why, when I hoped for it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. And I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also command the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his delightful plant. Thus he hoped for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So Isaiah is saying and and building upon this same imagery from Asaph. And he says, God was the one who, who worked and laid everything out so that Israel could thrive in the land. But what did they produce? God is expecting fruit. He's expecting them to to represent him to the nations. Israel was intended to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation where all of the other nations of the world would come and have relationship with God through Israel. But now God is saying, "I, I wanted you to produce fruit, but all of you have produced is worthless grapes, wild grapes. That's quite the indictment. The same imagery is used in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1 and Jeremiah two twenty-one, And they're building all upon what Asaph has originated and then what uh, the previous or other authors build upon from there. But turn with me over to Ezekiel chapter 15. Ezekiel's building upon that same idea from Isaiah where Isaiah asked, What else could I have done for my vineyard? Ezekiel 15, verse 1, Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any wood of a branch, which is among the trees of the forest? Can wood be taken from it to make anything? Or can men make a, take a peg from it on which to hang any vessel? If it has been put into the fire for fuel, and fire has consumed both of its ends, and its middle part has been charred, is it then useful for anything? behold while it is intact it is not made into anything how much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred can it still be made into anything therefore thus says lord yahweh as the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest which i have given to the fire for fuel so have i given up the inhabitants of jerusalem and i will give my face to be against them though they have come out of the fire yet the fire will consume them And then you will know that I am Yahweh when I set my face against them. Thus, I will give over the land to desolation because they have acted unfaithfully, declares the Lord Yahweh. In Ezekiel's time, they're asking, how can God allow his people to go into exile into Babylon? And and God is using this illustration of, of a vine. He says, really, what is a vine good for? You can't build anything with it. It's not going to be good fuel for fire. It is good for nothing if it is unfruitful. And that's what God is saying. There's nothing else to do with this vine but to to burn it up and toss it aside. Later on in Ezekiel 19, Ezekiel is going to speak about what this vine was prepared for. 19 verse 10 says, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard planted by the waters. It was fruitful and full of branches because of abundant waters. And it had strong, thick branches. Notice what what the vine was prepared for. What were the strong, thick branches to do? They were fit for scepters of rulers. Israel was planted in the land to, to again be a kingdom. And that's said in in Exodus before they even have a king. Israel was, was put into the land so that they would have a faithful king and that they would represent God upon the earth. And over time, we see that that king is going to be in the line of David. And it had strong, thick branches, verse 11, fit for scepters of rulers, and its height was exalted above the clouds so that it was seen in its exaltedness with the mass of its foliage. But it was uprooted in wrath, and it was cast to the ground, and the east wind dried up its fruit. Its strong, thick branch was torn off, speaking of the king that was there, so that it dried up, and the fire consumed it. So now it is planted in the wilderness, in a dry and thirsty land, and fire has gone out from its thick branch, and it has consumed its shoots and fruit, so that there is not in it a strong, thick branch And then right along what that strong thick branch is to be is a scepter to rule. I think what what Jesus is building upon from the from the prophets is that Israel was intended to be a vine that was going to be built up and grown and produce fruit and to be strong enough to support the rule of the, the, the future Davidic king. It failed in the past and now Jesus is saying that he is the true vine. And that he has replaced Israel for being the, the conduit of blessing to the nations. Right? Old Testament, the, the nations would be in relationship with God by going to Israel. In the New Testament, the New Covenant, how do the nations come to God? Through Christ. It's no longer ethnic uh, identity or connect, being connected to Israel. It's being connected to Jesus himself. Uh, this is a, a significant uh, shift and a significant uh, thing that Jesus is is saying and proclaiming here in this little tiny statement that He is the true vine. And what we see here is again the believer's union with Christ uh, and the believer's union with Christ. We just talked about this in our Titus one class a couple weeks ago, and it was remarkable how few of the guys were familiar with that term. I wasn't familiar with that term for uh, about two and a half, three to three years in my early Christian walk. I'm like, union with Christ? What is this? I've never seen that uh, in scripture. And it's really easy to, to miss union with Christ because it's, it comes out or is fleshed out in the Bible just with two small words. Usually it's just in Christ or with Christ. Or here in John chapter 14 and 15, uh, it, as Jesus is speaking, it's just in me. This is what is, is being laid out, but it's uh, everywhere in the New Testament. One systematic theology defines a union with Christ as this. It says, it is a basic dimension of the doctrine of salvation. And by being identified with Christ in his atoning death as well as in his resurrection power, believers are credited with his righteousness and share in his holiness. That's the significance of our union with Christ is that we are placed into him and he is placed into us. That systematic theology continues. This is one of the most precious truths in all of scripture is the doctrine of the believer's union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The concept of being united to Christ speaks of the most vital spiritual intimacy that one can imagine between the Lord and his people. That while Christ relates to believers as Lord, Master, Savior, and Teacher, they are not merely associated with Christ as the object of his saving grace and love. It is not that Christians merely worship Jesus, obey him, or pray to him. Though surely those privileges would be enough, rather they are so intimately identified with him, and he with them that Scripture says that they are united. He is in them, and they are in him. The Lord and His people share a common spiritual life, such that the Apostle Paul could say that our life is hidden with Christ in God. It's in Colossians three three, and that Christ is Himself our life. Colossians three four, and that Christ lives in us. Galatians two twenty. The spiritual life is found in being united to Christ by faith. Life is found by being connected to the true mind. He's the conduit. And if we're disconnected from him, we have no spiritual life. And so if you have trusted in him, if you have looked to him in faith and, looked, and trusted that he alone is able to, to reconcile you with God the Father because of his life, death, and resurrection... If you have looked to Christ in faith in that way, you are united with him. You are a part of the true vine. But if you haven't looked to Christ in that way, you're just out there dried and withered up all on your own. You have no spiritual life apart from Christ. And so if you haven't looked to Christ, again, I would encourage you do so now. Listen to everything that Jesus has said throughout the gospel of John. All of his statements of that, he is the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life. He is inviting people to look to him in faith and promising spiritual blessings and rewards. This is the promises that he is giving. And all of them flow out of union with him. And so this is the first truth that we must embrace in both mind and heart. But there's a second spiritual truth concerning uh spiritual life here in these verses second when kind of at the the end of verse one is that it is god who unites us to christ this i am statement is is unique because it's followed by a description of god the father jesus says i am the true vine and my father is the vine grower the word there is actually just the idea that God is the, the farmer. He, he's the, the gardener. Uh, and uh, the word for gardener or farmer in the, the Greek is where we get our name George. So if, you, if you, you have that name, you are called a farmer in the Greek. So, But as we're going to, to see... Just, Jesus is the vine and God is the vine dresser, the vine grower. And that, that's not referring to God the Father cultivating the Son, but that God the Father is cultivating all of those who are connected to the Son. Again, think back to Psalm 80 and Isaiah 5. How is it describing God working in, in the vineyard? Right. He, he's tilling the ground and removing the stones and planting and and spading in and, and tending to the vineyard. And now God is at work not only in Israel, but in the church among all of the, the nations of the world. And he is working to attach believers to Christ, the true vine. And the Apostle Paul is going to allude to this reality, although he's going to mix metaphors a little bit in first Corinthians chapter three. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth so that then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. God is the one who is uh, working in us. Uh, And it is God who causes the growth. And this is really echoing everything that we studied last week in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves so that no one is able to boast. uh, But God is the one who attaches us and plants us, uh, grafts us into Christ. Uh, And that's the illustration that, that the Apostle Paul is going to use elsewhere in Scripture in Romans 11. He's going to talk about, uh, use this word grafting. Anybody ever ha- had to graft uh, uh, in uh, a tree in your yard? Yeah, some of you, like two of you. okay. Uh, but the idea of grafting is you take, you take a, a, a tree branch off of one tree uh, and uh, you're going to, to cut it in particular ways. Uh, you're going to scrape it and make it rough. And then you're going to uh, use some, some tape uh, and some uh, b- binding to, to wrap one tree branch onto another tree trunk. Uh, and that branch is going to now become a part of that, uh, that new tree uh, and be sustained and be nourished by this, this other tree trunk that is completely foreign to it. Uh, and the Apostle Paul is going to say that is the Gentiles being grafted into all of the promises of Israel. Uh, the Gentiles being grafted in, and that's us being grafted into Christ. Romans 11 is all about that. And, and it's important to, to think this through. Uh, do dead tree branches graft themselves onto another tree? What do dead tree branches do? They just kind of lie there, right? It would be nice if dead tree branches would get off of your backyard and go and take themselves to the dump, right? Amen? Right? It's like, can, that, can we arrange for that to happen? But dead, dead tree branches don't do anything. And so the emphasis is that God is the one who cultivates. God is the one who is the vine dresser. He is the one who brings salvation. It comes completely from God. He saves us by his grace so that we would be uh, his trophies for all of eternity. That we would glorify him uh, and continue to sing his praises and live for his glory and bear much fruit. So even in this little statement, we still are are reminded that we are to give God all the glory for our salvation. He is the vine grower. And so spiritual life flows to us through our union with Christ, uh, which is initiated and completed by God the Father. Those are the the first two truths uh, concerning spiritual life uh, in this passage. And then there's there's a third and it's this, that God is at work to cultivate his people. And this is seen in verse 2. So there's a, there's a description of uh, Jesus, that he is the true vine. There's a description of the Father as the vine grower. And then verse 2 is going to, to lay out how God is at work to cultivate his people. Verse 2 says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. What we see here in verse 2 is there are, there are two kinds of branches and two different activities of God in, in cultivating the vineyard of his people during this church age. The first kind of branch that we see is those that are not bearing fruit. But Jesus begins, verse 2, with every branch in me that does not bear fruit. And the, the, the first four words in that verse have caused a lot of confusion. Because Jesus says, every branch in me. But that's not describing union with Christ. But you're like, Thomas, I, you just said union with Christ. But this is also where we use scripture to interpret scripture. We we use uh, more clear passages of scripture to interpret less clear passages of scripture Uh, and to help us understand that there are uh, what could this possibly mean? when Jesus says that every branch in me and what it what it has to mean is only speaking of those who have a claim of discipleship over the course of uh, Jesus, ministry. There were many there were thousands who were flocking to him. And even if you think of uh, the story in John, chapter six. Jesus, after preaching, after feeding the 5,000, and those are just the men, so it's probably closer to, to ten to 15,000 people in, in all. Jesus feeds the, the, the 5,000, walks across the water. People understood, like, how did he miraculously get from one side of the sea to the other side of the sea? They go and they pursue him. They want to make him king. And then uh, he is going to uh, c- proclaim to them uh, that... Uh, that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And people are going to be like, that's kind of strange. That, that spiritual truth pointing to uh, the Lord's table and pointing of partaking of him and taking him into our innermost being, that weirds people out. And so at the end of John 6, there there are many of his disciples, calling themselves his disciples, who leave and abandon him. And then he turns to the, the twelve He says, are you guys also going to leave? And Peter says, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so over the course of John's gospel, there are many who claim to be followers of Jesus who are not actually followers. This is alluded to elsewhere in in the gospels as well. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. And people on that last day will come up and, and profess to have done many things in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me. That, that is, that's sobering. So not everybody who claims to be connected to Jesus is actually connected to Jesus. And that's what is being alluded to here. And that becomes evident that they're not connected to the true vine because they're, they're not bearing fruit. There is no spiritual transformation in their life. And a, a human vine grower, what they would do probably once a year is they would go out to their vine and they would uh, look at all of the, the dead branches, every, any, all, any and all of the offshoots that were not producing anything. And if you're familiar with vines, that happens frequently. What he would do is anything that's not bearing fruit and it's just a dead branch, they would cut that off and cast it aside would not be good for anything else and god is saying that he's doing the the same thing spiritually with those who are not bearing spiritual fruit i love what jc ryle says he says there are myriads of professing christians in every church whose union with christ is only outward and formal some of them are joined to christ by baptism and church membership some of them go even further than this and are regular communicants and loud talkers about religion but they all lack the one thing needful notwithstanding services and sermons and sacraments they have no grace in their hearts no faith no inward work of the holy spirit they are not one with christ and christ with them their union with him is only nominal and not real they have a name to live, but in the sight of God, they are dead, as it says in Revelation 3, 1. So that, that's the, the first branch that Jesus lays out here. That there, if you claim to be in Christ, but there is no spiritual fruit, uh, that eventually Jesus doesn't immediately say you're going to be cut off immediately. And Matthew 13 seems to indicate in the, in the, the parables of the kingdom uh, that there is going to be wheat and tares in the church throughout the church age. Uh, And the tares and the wheat won't be separated until the final judgment or as they individually die out. Then they are immediately sorted into those who truly are connected with Christ, the wheat, and those who are not, the tares. But here we have one branch that does not bear fruit and is taken away, removed, thrown aside. But then there's a second branch that bears fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, meaning that there is some spiritual growth. And then it says, uh, in the the legacy standard translation, says that he cleans it so that it may bear more fruit. Now, the idea of, of cleaning is. In the Greek, there's a play on words for for multiple reasons, because uh, the idea is of pruning or or trimming away the little small shoots. uh, And before they turn into dead wood, cutting little things away so that the the nutrients and the energy and the focus of the plant in its growth goes towards the branches that are already producing fruit. And then those branches that are producing fruit uh, become even more and more fruitful. Now, but there's also a play on words because the, the same word here is also used at the beginning of chapter 13 on numerous occasions because it's the idea of being clean. So the, there's two ideas being thrown thrown together of being cut away is of being scrubbed more and more clean. And so a human vine grower would, would do this same reality. Uh, and Jesus is pointing to something he's working from what is known and familiar by his disciples to what is unknown say let me point to you how a vine grower a human vine grower deals with his vines and let that be an illustration of how god is working and cultivating you and working and cultivating the entire uh, church and honestly we see two examples we see an example of each of these branches in this upper room discourse well, who would be a branch not bearing fruit in the upper room discourse that's cut off and cast aside? Judas. Right? You think of somebody who would have been closely identified with Jesus. He went everywhere with him for three years. He heard all of his teachings, saw all of the miracles. And yet, what did he ultimately choose to do? To, do, to not only desert and fall away, but to betray his Lord. There, there, there's a picture right there. Say, so, well, how can, how can that be? Yeah, I, how can it be? There are many who do that. And ultimately, that will culminate in, in judgment and being cast aside. Verse 6 has a, a description of what will take place. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather him and cast him into the fire, and they are burned. So Judas is a picture of a branch not bearing fruit. But who is the example of a, a, a branch bearing a little bit of fruit that gets pruned? Peter, right? Peter's there boasting, I'll go, I'll follow you to death. Jesus says, not so fast. You will, but you need to be pruned first. Peter's going to be able to uh, ultimately die and to be crucified just like his Savior, albeit upside down because he didn't think he was worthy of be dying in the same way as his lord. Peter's going to be strengthened in and through his suffering and those little things in his life being clipped clipped off. So this is this is an encouragement to us. That over time God will work to cultivate And grow each individual believer and he will also gradually reveal those branches that are spiritually dead and yet claiming to be connected to him. This passage is not in any way saying that a genuine believer is going to lose their salvation. But only that many claim to be connected who are not. And ultimately we know them by their fruit. Which forces all of us to kind of examine our hearts and examine our lives. The greatest assurance of our salvation is a transformed life. Look at how different I am now, not in my own doing, but by the grace of God. I see God at work in me. My desires have changed, my actions, my words. If you are a genuine believer, united with Christ and connected to the true vine, God is and will be at work in your life gradually cleansing you as a branch and as a disciple so that you bear more fruit your, your life is going to gradually be realigned and if you look backwards in time you're probably going to be able to see that what were your hobbies when you first became a believer what were your your interests what did you fill your time with are you doing the same things now or have those changed and been redirected your life should gradually look more and more like your saviour Philippians 1.6, the Apostle Paul says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And a verse and a passage you're probably very familiar with, Romans eight twenty eight and 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. An exact number, right? Every little clip of God's shears works for good. So that we would be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers to quote J.C. Ryle again, he says, let us remember that this sentence throws light on many of the afflictions and trials of God's people. that they are all part of that mysterious process by which God, the father purifies and sanctifies Christ's people. And they are the pruning of the vine branches for good and not for harm. To increase their fruitfulness, all the most eminent saints in every age have been men of sorrows and often pruned, often trimmed back. So really what we, what we see from, from these two verses of these three spiritual truths that we've looked at this morning is we hold all three of these truths together closely and tightly That union with Christ is spiritual life, and we don't unite ourselves with Christ. God the Father unites us with God the Son. And then it is God the Father who is cultivating us, who who is uh, cleansing and and cutting in, in all of the right ways, in all of the right places, in all of the right times. And he's cultivating his church individually and collectively. Now, if a vine could could speak as it is in the process of being pruned by the vine dresser, what would that vine say? Yeah. Ouch. Right. That hurts. Right. Please stop that. Can you not do that? No, not that one. Don't do that one. That one may bear fruit someday. Right. Those are the things that a, that a vine would say to the vine dresser. And those are often our exact same cries to God while we are being pruned in this life aren't they God maybe maybe not yet can i keep can i keep that no can i still do this and god is graciously trimming and cutting back again in the exact right way at the exact right time holding all of these truths together we understand that God has united us with his son and now his loving hands hold the shears that will shape us into the likeness of Jesus and that they will lead us to being ever more fruitful in the Christian life. This was a lesson that that Amy Carmichael, great missionary learned for herself and she often taught it to others. She was a, a missionary in India for more than 50 years And she personally experienced so much suffering. I would encourage you, read her biography. But reflecting on this passage, this is what she wrote. She says, What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, there is not a random stroke in it at all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep and gain to lose. And then this is what she prayed in response to this passage. Rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. May that. Be our prayer.